listeners. I am Dr. Michael Rivera, and I'm the host of the Ark and Anth podcast. And I'm so happy to welcome you again to another episode where we have another fantastic guest on the show. Our guest today is Kyle Marianne Viterbo. Kyle, are you there? I am. Hello. Hi, Kyle. How are you today? Uh... Uh, <laughs> I, I can't answer that question truthfully anymore because it's always mm-hmm. something in between. Um, the world is burning. So what do you do? And um, strategically planning to how uh, to fight the rebel, you know, to fight with the rebellion. So, <laughs> mm-hmm. I mean, I loosely say that, but um, it, it is where we are today. So, so just for context, listeners, uh, we are recording this on uh, a Monday on June the 1st. So if we're talking, if we're referring to any current affairs uh, right now, that is what we are talking about. And basically in the last week, we have our eyes on the protests that are happening in the U.S. right now that are calling for racial justice and to, you know, really have the police be held accountable for the murder of many uh, black civilians, innocent black civilians on the streets by uh, the hands of police. So that's the sort of context that we're in at this very moment. And uh, I think that that's important to acknowledge. Yeah, I I agree. Um, And that a lot of people who have been working in social justice are, you know, I mean, we've we've been prepping people we've been talking to people for a long time and i think it feels more like a momentous time in history mm-hmm. because it feels like maybe there can be change but um we'll see you know mm-hmm. uh these past few days have been very much about the pain and suffering um of the black community and yeah, that's that's kind of at the forefront. There's also the fact that this is right in the middle of a pandemic mm-hmm. and that the U.S. has been, especially in New York City, where I am, has been in heavy uh, lockdown mm-hmm. um, to, you know, flatten the curve, as they say, to, to lessen um, the stress on our healthcare system, which is also not great. Mm-hmm. Um, and so this feels like a huge culmination and the fact that people are out on the streets risking their lives for justice um, feels incredibly important. Um, so that's kind of where my head is at these days. Yeah, uh, me too. Yeah. Yeah. And like, I just, uh, when I think about it, it's just that the cost, you know, the cost for justice is so high and, and that is what really, um, you know, it really, really like gets me and a lot of people that I'm talking to, especially black folks, just really depressed about the situation and, you know, just how things have gone so bad over so many years. Yeah. I, I think there's also that layer of like, this feels like an, an enduring cycle Mm-hmm. You know, um, and it's funny because like you, you, this is an Arcananth podcast and a huge part of anthropology is, you know, facing our dark history and the roots of, of racism and inequity. Um, you know, over the last couple of years, for example, the American Association of Physical Anthropologists put out a definitive statement on race and racism. Mm-hmm. Um 
And also the fact that, you know, so much of the movement, the, this, the recent movements in, in academia for archaeology and anthropology is really, you know, owning up to decolonizing um, mm-hmm. our spaces because it has a deep legacy that perpetuates um, a lot of harmful parts of our past yeah um and so like this is all this feels so tied to one another and like it feels like you know this is also a huge part of how we can activate our knowledge right like Mm -hmm. i don't know how you feel about it michael but like there's a huge part of even when you're writing grants i'm a former physical anthropologist i you know have worked in um archaeology sites and with interdisciplinary researchers we've talked for years about what it means to write grants and like you know in the u.s what it means to apply for an uh, a national science foundation grant mm-hmm. um under the guise of like I guess this is knowledge for knowledge when you're writing what is the broader impact, you know, of, of the work that we're doing. And like this, this moment in history is very much tied to, no, this isn't knowledge for knowledge sake. This is, you know, an important part of, of understanding the legacy of, of our knowledge bases of how we, how we, you know, um, how we record history, how, how we talk about history, the words that we choose, mm-hmm. like it, it's all such a culmination of so many of the things that we had been taught and like paid to be taught, you know what I mm-hmm. mean? Um, and so it just, it feels wrong to not sit in that discomfort and not be in a way uh, optimistic that there are things that we can act on because mm-hmm. we have a, this huge knowledge base um, and an amazing community of people who want to change uh, that legacy. Yeah, yeah. Right? I totally agree with that. Just when I reflect on you know my education and training and the people who I've been exposed to in the last 10 or 11 years, um, you know, I have been gradually like more and more exposed to people who really want to use anthropology and archaeology to do good. And uh, especially when it comes to archaeology, I think that there's this notion, you know, a, kind of like a like a very cheesy, noble notion that we're doing it to honor the deceased, to like, you know, keep the memory alive of people in the past. But uh, another very important part of that is also that we also do archaeology for the people today. And um, I, I think all the time about how, how that how 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 is that true like how, what are we doing with the archaeological knowledge that we have and that we we gather using data what do we do with that and how do we use that to actually help people or are we really just trying to you know dig up old bones and stones just for the sake of it it's it's funny that you i, I have to interrupt just a little bit because yeah. you know the, the beginning of your of your thought there was like you know we want to do good and I'm currently working as a comedian, producer, science communicator. And at the moment, I'm working with an organization called Science Friday. Um, But I want to make it clear that everything that I'm saying and all of the things that I write online and publicize, and especially my independent work with the symposium Academic Stand-Up, those are all my thoughts and does not reflect anybody 
that I work with or any clients that I have in in SciComm. Understood. Yeah. But it's important to me that people understand that um, I want to help and keep learning about how to make STEM science uh, academia more inclusive. Mm -hmm. And so I'm part of a group of folks who are working hard to in inclusive science communication um, and to make that a more uh, integrated part of people's practice in spaces in comedy. Like I'm a comedian, but like the root of my comedy is, is academic and science comedy, but also this idea that like, comedy can can be used as a tool to critique mm -hmm. socially critique ideas and and situations right um satire is a huge part of that um and i when i'm training people when i'm training academics to use comedy to translate the research right for fun for adults etc i have to help people sort of really reconsider mm -hmm. what their words mean to their audience, right? And when we say, you know, we want to do good with our research, it just like, it hits me differently now. Like it, it hits me in a way where like, mm -hmm. well, good for who, you know? Like it's not, I mean, is it an altruistic, like is any academic mm -hmm. discipline altruistic, you know? Like, what is good versus right now what is needed, um, which is writing history, like writing mm -hmm. the the wrongs, right? Like that's not just neutral good, right? Like yeah, that is chaotic good. Do you know what I mean? Like, and I feel like I'm not the only one that does this, but like when I used to write grants and I had to write that section on, um, on broader impacts, um, which is like, you know, you, you essentially uh right and argue what is the meaningful thing that comes out of your research and why mm -hmm. it should be funded it's like well there are times when early on in my career when i was like a younger grad student uh the idea was very much like well science for the sake of science and knowledge right that's a good like but even i couldn't convince myself mm -hmm. deeply Right. Like it was hard to be like, well, I know enough. Like I didn't know enough about the actual impacts or like the approaches that I take or the, the things that I pitched. Mm -hmm. What did that actually mean in terms of long term impact? Like it's not like we were taught early on in many programs what it means to evaluate mm -hmm. or to start with a goal and like deconstruct the process uh, of your work so that early on you actually have a meaningful target mm -hmm. a meaningful objective meaningful path to to what you mean and like to really critically think about that part of like mm -hmm. well what does good mean when you're talking about yeah. uh, academia mm -hmm. right yeah <laughs> i feel the way I, I feel the very same way like there's so many signs in the last two or three years that basically have um honestly like pulled me away from doing that sort of research that you know, measures this or observes that just for the sake of it. I find it really, really hard right now to even think about writing um, papers from my, my PhD that I recently completed. And because I don't see really the benefit of like putting 
uh, well, of doing the, of, of uh, doing the research and then putting it in a journal that nobody can access mm-hmm. and the implications, if there are any like of that work that I did, you know, and conceived of when I was younger with, you know, less perspective and less, um, when I was just less well-read and ignorant is not really applying right now to the things that I care about today. And I, I don't, is, was it a waste of time? I, I don't know, but I, I, I think at least that, you know, at least going through some education and definitely feeling like seeing that things didn't make sense and it didn't really treat a lot of my friends really well in this system. So I see a lot of my friends who are really um, trying to interweave aspects of activism and social justice into their research as much as they can. They want to decolonize our discipline. They want to decolonize the questions that we ask, work closely with communities so that we are only doing work that will be beneficial to society. And if, and if it isn't, if there is no sign that that's the case, they don't do it. Like they're really, really trying hard to, to do this sort of thing. But the problem is that that kind of thinking in our field is not rewarded. And then uh, you can also talk about science communication and a lot of also, a lot of anthropologists also do a bit of um, science performance or science communication online. They do YouTube videos, they do podcasts like mine, they do science comedy. And again, that kind of thing is not rewarded. That kind of outreach that actually shows what anthropology in theory should be able to do with this sort of social justice element incorporated into it. A lot of people are not like rewarded for that work. All that really matters is your impact factor. Yeah, it's it's disincentivized. Yeah, it's disincentivized. It's mm-hmm. it's harmful to careers, right? Because the people who hold the money, the people who hold the power, the people who have sway over the culture of a mm-hmm. space, especially in academia, they don't find they don't find that it's valuable because their social currency for that space is in the silo of academia of the ivory mm-hmm. tower right i think the the thing that like really strikes me too it i mean i i have been lucky in that when i made the switch from going into from from pursuing my phd in physical anthropology and studying human fossils and evolution um, and then switching to science mm-hmm. communication uh, as a as a practitioner i found comedy and I found comedy in a way that allowed me to uh, catharsis from what, like all the things that like I can only say in my head yeah. and to myself um, and felt shame, uh, like in, in wanting to say it out loud because I felt so wrong in many ways to be in all these spaces and in anthropology and archaeology that are so white and that like every gatekeeper to to some fossil or to some bigger idea of thought um in in studying human evolution and especially for me Mm -hmm. island southeast asian like fossils and knowledge like they're all white and European and all white institutions. And it was so frustrating that like, that was a huge part of what I think looking back, that was a huge part of what gave me imposter syndrome, but also a mental health um, problem around that time. Mm -hmm. And I found like, for me, comedy empowered me. And I found myself in spaces where I got to test these ideas, but also had a safe space to fail to eventually 
find the right words for my ideas and to, to find myself with, you know, to be lucky enough to live in New York City where there is such a diversity of artists and comedians that like I can choose to surround myself with people who who have found the words to challenge mm-hmm. uh, the status quo and to, to be empowered mm-hmm. to, to say things out loud and to push against the model minority uh, that's that I was conditioned to be, you know, from not just from childhood, but like from our own history as Filipinos, right. As Filipinex, um, like that, that like was what was so valuable for me with comedy and, what I've noticed in trying to push the science communication space too and empower other graduate students, postdocs to be more themselves is challenging the notion of who are you actually mm-hmm. trying to please? Like, who are you prioritizing as your audience? Who do you serve? Who do you serve? Exactly. Mm-hmm. And and does that align with your your life goals does that align with your with your you know ethos as a person Mm -hmm. and if it doesn't ask yourself why you know like i think one of the things that i've really hooked on to in the past couple of years is like what value is it in me being someone who serves the white audience first yeah um when that is also me throwing my community under the bus Mm-hmm. And like it, it just it just it, you just have to you know like the the words that I use the mannerisms that I have the the you know the who I want to please mm-hmm. like like I can't even control sometimes who I want to please when I'm I'm taking the stage but you know I found myself in comedy stages on comedy stages um, doing uh, academic stand up making fun of Indiana Jones talking about you know creating a show around mm-hmm. the idea that museums are not neutral um, to a room of curators right and reveling mm-hmm. in their discomfort nice. and like being finding power in challenging their status quo mm-hmm. because i can also show these are the people that you say you serve but you're you're not serving them, right? Um, and so I think that's that to me has been what comedy has gifted me is is the the idea to think more critically about who I am prioritizing when I am choosing projects, when I am writing something, when I am voicing uh, a thought, right? Mm-hmm. Am I am I actually prioritizing the dis, the feelings and discomfort of people in power? Uh, in which case, why? You yeah. know, uh, mm-hmm. like I mean, to, again, to like I am not in academia anymore, and so there is power in me being an outsider, bringing that back because then I feel like I can actually empower somebody else who's inside to to say, I guess I don't need to to keep doing that or like at least to see how you can do it strategically and not feel like it's something that you have to do. Mm-hmm. Um, I would love to um, get into, uh, you know, talk more about this um, catering to whiteness concept because I, 
I'm getting the feels just like uh, listening to, to what you're saying. Yeah. <laughs> like I'm getting a lot of, um, yeah, I have a lot of feelings about this and uh, maybe we'll go, we'll go into that a little bit more in, a, in just a second. I, I think I need some time. <laughs> yeah, no, take your yeah. time. Um, Write it down too, in case you want to bring it back yeah. towards the end of our conversation. Yeah, I, right? I have written it down and um, we'll definitely return to that. But um, would you be able to tell me a little bit about like what life is like as a comedian in New York? Do you have like um, certain venues that are like where your home is, or do you have several places that you're familiar with and you sort of bounce around? Yeah. So, so, um, the way that I approach comedy, um, and the way that I have found comedy, uh, isn't necessarily the way that like other comedians have found it. Right. Like I found it, Mm -hmm. uh, like for myself, I felt empowered to give it a try and to use it as an art form to speak about social justice, because as I was doing my, um, master's in science communication and public engagement at the University of Edinburgh, I found a community of people who have already been doing and creating space to use uh, comedy to communicate other parts of academia. It's called Bright Club, um, Mm. right? And they've been going on for over 10 years in the UK, started by a friend, um, Steve Cross, and it left a big impact on me that when I came back to New York City, I wanted to pursue like comedy, um, but it took me two years to actually get my idea off the ground uh, of doing more comedy that is specifically, you know, edu- educational entertainment, um, but also mm-hmm. with a social justice uh, lens. Um, and that was because the American comedy scene is still very much about punchlines per minute. You know, people go to a space to just laugh, especially late night. They're drinking. Um, New York City's comedy clubs are amazing. You know, it is the place where people go so that they can find their voice and that they can be um, they can have as much practice as possible. Mm-hmm. This was before the pandemic. There was, a, you know, there is a ton of spaces that people could practice and get better and fail better. Um, Mm -hmm. And so that was kind of, you know, punchlines by the minute is, is typically how comedy is done here. But two years into um, coming back for me, I, you know, I met some more folks in science communication in New York City, and there was a venue that was opening up called Caveat um, that was specifically for, uh, intellectual nightlife is what they they call it Mm -hmm. and so i was able to pitch the idea of bringing academic comedy to new york city and like to really push what it means to do stand-up like as that form of stand-up and not just like another ted talk that's funny but like to really push the idea of stand-up comedy um where you are educating people about things that they don't typically learn in textbooks Mm -hmm. right and so my trajectory into comedy it feels very different. And I compare it like I've had these conversations with fellow science comedians, my friends, um, Shannon Odell and uh, Kasha Patel. We've had these conversations before where like our paths to finding comedy were so different. And like it also the styles have colored our styles. And like you can tell by the way that we write jokes or the, by the way that we present them. They're very different. <clears throat> Because of like for me, I I feel like I have a little bit more room to to incorporate storytelling, um, comedic storytelling into uh, my comedy. But I also don't feel the stress of not making people laugh 
before I make them laugh. Yeah. Whereas a lot of my stand-up comedian friends in New York um, feel that stress. Like they feel like they have to please, <laughs> you know, because it feels so awkward to just have silence. Um, whereas mm-hmm. I have found in using and, and being more in more spaces and also being exposed to a wealth of styles of comedy at the Edinburgh Fringe, um, Mm-hmm. that there is power in that silence and that, you know, you don't have to fear it. Um, but if I had to perform in a more regularly comedic space, that that is to my detriment, right? Like that I, mm. like it, I need to trim the quiet so that I can just hit the punchlines because otherwise the audiences in that space are not used to it, right? Like they're, there's kind of a sub like there are cultures within these comedic spaces and like i need to yeah. i need to 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 adhere to them otherwise uh i'll never be performing in those spaces again <laughs> you know like mm-hmm. yeah. it, it 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 really fine-tuned my those experiences really fine-tuned my connection to an audience and to what the space means for for how an audience feels and how an audience frames what you're saying. Mm-hmm. Are you right? working in the, the gig economy or do you have like, um, you know, do you work in comedy full-time? I, I used to do the gig economy. So I used to be a freelancer. Um, mm-hmm. I would teach... Uh, professional development workshops to postdocs, grad students uh, regularly. And also I used to work for an organization part-time called Guerrilla Science. Uh, They're still in the UK. They're less active in the US right now. Um, And so I I was able to do a lot. And that also working in the gig economy back then um, gave me room to focus on my creative side. Yeah. Uh, and so I was doing a lot at Upright Citizens Brigade in New York City. I was doing a lot at Caveat. I was creating my own stuff. I was running an open mic. Um, much of in the U.S., if you're doing comedy, you don't get paid unless, you know, you've made it big or you're a touring comedian. Mm-hmm. Um, that's just how things are. Um and so the the gig economy allowed me to to support myself yeah. um, and still push and practice in science communication. Mm-hmm. Um, but like the I, I, I like it was kind of like my my fight club <laughs> was uh, the comedy <laughs> space. Uh, and when you're first starting out, you mentioned this uh, idea of like failing better. Uh, that's that's where you have a lot of um, mm-hmm. you know latitude to fail better. Is is failing better different for a Filipina woman in New York? Failing better. There's a lot of Filipina comedians in New York City, uh, not just in stand up, but uh, in in theater, in uh, sketch in improv um there's quite a few of us um and it was very empowered like it was so great to like meet them um but uh i feel like the struggle isn't just being filipina filipino filipinex in new york city because there are so many asians and there are so many people in the diaspora um it's largely white versus black indigenous poc and that is where like a lot of the mm-hmm. the distinction can be in a stage um and even you know uh, across the a diverse white community I, and i say that sort of ironically um mm-hmm. you know there is also the di- like the difference with like white women and also um white men uh there's just so many intersections uh, but like the struggle, quote unquote, tends to be um, 
Black, Indigenous, POC, um, what I've found is that uh, unless, you know, the the black performers are like leading their voices sometimes it can feel like very tokenized Mm -hmm. um depending on who's producing the show Mm -hmm. or like what kind of theater venue etc is producing it and so it's it's kind of a different awareness of power imbalances in that space yeah but failing better going back to what you were saying um failing better as an asian and member of the asian diaspora not just asian american is very different because we have to also acknowledge our privileges, right? Mm -hmm. We are white adjacent. And so that means, and like, we are also fetishized. And so there, there's this like very complex system that we kind of float in, um, in terms of social justice and, uh, in the, in the, in these social spaces, Mm -hmm. um, that it gets hard to really delve into the struggles of the Asian community without having your, unless your audience already knows what's up, right? right? Unless your audiences already have some baseline knowledge because with comedy, especially in general, like in the more popular spaces, you don't have time to explain that history of complexity. And so it makes it really difficult to fail better in that sense. Mm-hmm. But what I have found is that um, we've created, like the, the Asian community ha- have created spaces for themselves to be able to talk and to revel and to empower one another um, in our struggles um, in a way that gives us a little bit more room mm-hmm. um, to to learn how to, to explore that nuance, right? Mm-hmm. Um, like for example, like when I earlier this year, we have lived through so much in 2020. Right. But earlier this year in New York City, in particular, right, um, the coronavirus had like taken over a lot of you know the news, mm-hmm. and we were learning about it. And I early on around like the end of Lunar New Year, a friend of mine who is a Taiwanese. Um, we were both just DMing and we decided to create a show together to, to explore how harmful things were at a time when it hasn't even hit the fan in New York or in the U.S. Mm-hmm. It was just like the, the dredges of racism, like, you know, came through. And even though the news was focused on China and Asia in terms of the spread of the coronavirus, it was directly impacting um, uh, Asians worldwide and also uh, harming the economy of Asian businesses in New York when we still didn't have anybody who uh, presented with uh, coronavirus or COVID, yeah. right? Um, and so to, to be able to create a show and be like, ah, I can, we have to address this early on um, and we have to create the space and the space has to be, you know, filled with Asian performers because no one else can really speak to that nuance of just being like both oppressed but also seen as model minorities, but also being white adjacent and understanding that these are all, you know, like we, we have to have our sacred space to be able to talk about this because no one else is giving us that space. And right. of the people that we invite, it has to be people who have been doing the work to, to, to vocalize, to articulate what that means, because otherwise it'll be messy and, you know, we won't have within just an hour and a half, which is not that much time to explore the depths of the, the complexity. 
Mm-hmm. We won't have time for people to 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 learn, right? So we need people who are a gamers to be able to both communicate that harm, but also to to make people laugh about how ridiculous mm-hmm. it is. Um, yeah, I, 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 I've never done comedy, but my impression of it is that you know comedians can be some of the most generous people on the planet. T- tell me about that, um, like putting that event together. Comedians are people too. (laughs) So you have people who are not great and you have people who are great. Um, And again, in New York City, because there's just a diversity of people who come from everywhere Mm -hmm. to New York City to to succeed, to find themselves, to to be educated, to to practice, uh, to be in comedy. Um, It means that you can find communities of people who you want to be with. And for myself, I was lucky to find my to find myself in comedy communities that were, you know, um, very front-footed about finding fighting for social justice. Um, you know, I I was learning from from comedian friends who are trans, non-binary, gender non-conforming. I was learning from friends who are black, who are indigenous, who you know, like we we were finding each other in spaces where we could vocalize our discontent and also explore what it means to to create solutions, right? Like um, learning from, from, from people who have experienced pain and are trying to change it and like understanding that like, okay, going forward, if I'm taking all these learnings from them, I can apply that somewhere and like mm. help dismantle the status quo by, by promising to, to do better. And like, not just, you know, not just like taking and not just hearing what they're saying at the time when they're trying to explain what's wrong, but to really apply it to what I'm doing and like not just give lip service, right? Like, Mm -hmm. and to pay it forward. Like that's, I think I was lucky to find myself in those spaces because that, that then applied to the shows that I was creating and the, you know, the, the work that I was doing to bring people together. Mm -hmm. Um, So the Asian strike back a coronavirus comedy and science show. um, It, because it came off the heels of the very first Asian comedy festival in New York, Mm -hmm. right? I mean, Asians have been in the U.S. and in New York and in comedy for a long time, but this was the very first time that we actually had friends who had put together a festival just to celebrate our voices because we had historically been told, oh, there are too many Asians on a show. You guys going to, you you people are going to say the same thing. So like, you know, we'll just have a few, um, you know, like that kind of pushback. Um, and we were coming off of the heels of that. And so we knew that we could bring together people whose perspectives will give different lenses to all the different parts of the Asian and Asian American experience in the U S so that we can better address, you know, the racism and anti-Asian sentiment, make people laugh, make people learn, but then I can also bring in, um, myself and other Asian scientists to clarify what was happening with the coronavirus, which on the day that we performed still felt like it was far away and we don't know when it's coming. But by the time that we left the venue um, that evening, it was announced that the first coronavirus case was in New York City. Mm. So, you know, like even in leaving the venue, the, the jokes that we were saying had like, gotten old right by the time that we got out and so it was kind of just the most serendipitous like timing in terms of of 
a performance. Mm-hmm. Uh, what um, was the reaction like after the show? Like, did you see reviews or comments online? Yeah, we actually had four or five uh, news outlets. We had four news outlets who were there that night recording, which was a, a first for me. Um, we had CNN, Now This, South China Morning Post. And then we were also approached afterwards by folks who, who saw that... Um, the, the reviews to talk about what was going on because what we were hearing from the journalists was that no one knows how to talk about the coronavirus. Um, and so, and I was like, ah, I mean, maybe you should have more diverse newsrooms. Um, mm-hmm. But <laughs> truly, like, you know, they, they reached out to us because they were like, we don't know how to handle it because it is both serious, but also delves into unknown territory, unknown science right? Like this is, it it was a time. And so like people just like reached out to us afterwards. Um, What was interesting though, though, with the people who were in the room, all of the Asians and all of the POCs um, and the black folks that were in the room absolutely loved it. They had a great time. Um, The people who were uncomfortable tended to be white folks who, uh, who hadn't ever heard Asians talk this way before, right? Who haven't all come to my house where I keep shouting at my boyfriend all the time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and so it's, it's interesting to then, you know, like at the end of the show, it was interesting. Like at the beginning when people were coming in and we had a completely sold out house and I was feeling anxiety because I just, we just brought together 160 people into a basement at a time when we were about to talk about the coronavirus, which is like, don't bring people together, (laughs) you know, in that sense. So I I felt that discomfort, but we had a lot of people who were white or white presenting um, in the audience, right? Um, And so there were moments, there were tiny moments during the show where we would talk about things and you know we would make jokes uh about white privilege and white folks or at least white presenting people who are pocs mm-hmm. um their friends their white friends were like offended <laughs> and it was very funny to to have that like just in the back running through some of the shows because we had like this one table in the front who had this white woman who was like uh who was with some you know POC friends and like one guy was Latino and we one of the comedians made a joke of like of course uh you know uh of course I would bring up like for for a crowd work segment joke yeah she brought up like three audience members to to drink Corona beer to face our fears, quote unquote. <laughs> um, remember that at the beginning of the coronavirus where the Corona beers were like, oh my gosh, people get Corona from Corona beers. <laughs> people are ridiculous. Yes. Um, and so like there was this bit where, you know, face your fears. And so Alex Song, um, who is a, a great comedian in New York City, uh, she brought people up to the stage to drink beers, but also kneel, uh, to kneel, you know, in honor of Colin Kaepernick, um, uh, and drink Corona beers. And so at one point she just kind of noted, of course I brought up, uh, white people to an all Asian, uh, show. That's great. Like just noting the irony. Mm -hmm. And the one white girl was like, but he's not even white because this one guy, presents as white but he is latinx Mm -hmm. right 
And him and his friends around the table were just like, no, 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 no. Let's, we can explain this to you later, but like now is not the time, right? This, this is a different space. Not right now. We'll yeah. talk about white privilege later mm-hmm. um, because everybody benefits from it. Not just, you know, if you're not black, you benefit from white privilege and that's a different yeah, like, let's not talk about that now, but, like, just calm down, okay? Yes. Like, <laughs> that's not how racism <laughs> works, but also, let's just, yeah. Um, <laughs> right. um, so it was, like, really, yeah, this moment um, of that. But then there was also another moment in terms of how people reacted to the space of, like, us as Asians, as Asian Americans pushing against this model minority thing and, like, actually delving into our, our pain and our struggle in the U.S., um, at the end of the show, a CNN reporter was interviewing us for a podcast, and uh, she asked me, you know, well, um, I had just interviewed somebody who was leaving, and she's this white woman, and she said, um, you know, it was, it was a great show, but I was actually, I'm leaving offended because one of the comedians said he doesn't care if, if older white people die. He doesn't care. Uh, and that offended me, um, which was interesting. Mm-hmm. That particular joke in the show was um, from Brian Yang, who is a Hmong comedian based in New York City. And the joke was tied to the bigger argument around how uh, the demographic of people who don't vote for uh, socialist ideas or progressive ideas tend to be a particular demographic, mm-hmm. right? The conservative community um, and the p- people who are pushing against uh, progressive ideas in politics in the U.S. tend to be white and older, mm-hmm who also happened to be at the cross-section of being in danger for coronavirus. Mm -hmm. And so he made this joke after arguing for all of that, of just like voicing pain in that way. Uh, And uh, this woman felt sort of betrayed by it and Mm -hmm. felt, uh, you know, that discomfort. And I think for myself, again, talking about audiences and like really, you know, not not just taking what they say at face value, Mm -hmm. but really digging into the why, you know, why would somebody feel that way? Why would they feel uncomfortable? And my response to the CNN producer, to the CNN reporter was like, well, I mean, they came to a show where it's titled Asian Strike Back. Were they actually expecting model minorities to, to not address this? Um, you know, I would hope that people who feel uncomfortable and are in places of power, and it's a comedy space where historically, right, uh, comedy in in royal royal courts mm-hmm. were jesters making fun of royalty and having a little laugh and also being and critiquing those spaces of power. For sure. That the audiences who feel uncomfortable would have enough self-awareness to dig at why mm-hmm. right to dig at all the like beyond the knee-jerk reaction to to maybe look reflectively inwards and ask okay what else about this space and what they're saying made me uncomfortable mm-hmm. yes i want to protect my elderly people our entire message during that night was and especially at that time when we didn't know more about the coronavirus except that we knew who was more vulnerable was protect the more vulnerable um, and, you know, strategize for yourself, right? And the fact that this person didn't necessarily have the time to 
you know, dig into being uncomfortable in that space is unfortunate, but I would hope that next time, you know, they can, they can feel more inclined to look deeper because if it weren't for them thinking that, oh my gosh, an Asian is making this joke and it makes me so angry, how dare they? But if it was a black person saying the same joke and they knew the history of pain that black people in the U.S. have experienced, would they feel as as insulted? Right. What do you think is the maybe like the legacy of the event for the people who went to to watch this? And and do you think that there is? I know that the coronavirus kind of like you know makes it difficult to recreate that space uh, again or similar spaces in the last few months. But do you think there's an increased demand for this? Do you think that? You know, what do you think are the, the impacts of this? We're, we're now three months away from that show mm-hmm. on the on the day, right? This is June 1st. It was a March 1st event. Yeah. Time feels weird in the pandemic, uh, especially in the U.S. It feels like uh, it's been decades. It's been years. We've gone through so much because the coronavirus has spotlighted and like really lifted up the social inequities in society mm-hmm. in the U.S., um, the fact that just last month, white supremacists and white people were protesting without masks on and shouting directly in the faces of police who weren't doing anything but just standing there. Mm-hmm. Um, the same people who had guns and rifles on them and shouting that they had the right to get haircuts and to, you know, to, to walk around freely and open up the economy. And later in this month, just in this past week, People of color and allies have gone to the streets to protest for unjust killings, um, police brutality, and they are they are being bombarded with tear gas. Mm-hmm. That there is, you know, that the police are directly inciting violence to these peaceful protesters so they could lock them down. They've also arrested over a thousand yeah. uh, protesters already. Right, uh, and just last week we. We acknowledge that there's been over 100,000 deaths of the coronavirus uh, in the U.S., which is probably, mm-hmm. you know, it, it might even be, you know, slightly less than what is real in terms of numbers um, because mm-hmm. we don't have a healthcare system that allows people to come in when they need to, right? Mm-hmm. Um, time feels so different right now. And at least around the immediate, like, couple of weeks, first month after the show, um, in terms of timeline, we did our show on March 1st. New York City also acknowledged our first case. Ten days later, New York City venues completely closed. Mm -hmm. Um, That meant all of comedy and theater in New York had shut down. Uh, People made their jump into Zoom, right? but the legacy of that show, I found that like my comedian friends walked away learning more and being feeling more prepared for the coronavirus. I had people who thanked me for information and being, you know, a reliable source of science at a time when there was a lot of uncertainty and there continues to be uncertainty, but they felt comfortable enough to know where to look in terms of fighting misinformation with COVID and the coronavirus and, um, you know, to wash their hands. And I also found that my friends, my Asian friends who didn't have that space previously to really talk about social injustices to our community 
um, felt empowered to to use their comedy more in that way. Mm -hmm. Um, And then there are friends and, you know, colleagues and like audience members who just felt great seeing the stories and comedy from that stage. So, you know, I feel like I don't know what that impact looks like now without asking them directly, you know, have you thought about our show in the past? But within that first month, it definitely felt like at least I did my job. Mm -hmm. At least I did justice to both fighting racial, you know, injustices um, against Asians, but also being able to talk more deeply about the nuances of how racism presents itself um, Mm -hmm. without having to throw any other black indigenous POCs under the bus, right? Um, mm-hmm. to, to help educate people both in like how to decipher, uh, good sources of science, um, and to understand how transmission works for viruses, right? Like that, that felt powerful to know that like comedians that were at mm-hmm. the show learned a lot, not just like comedians who were on the stage, but like fellow friends who came to watch, to support, you know, the performers, um, they they walked away feeling like that was amazing and i learned a lot um Mm -hmm. and i feel like you know that that is like the culmination of like why i do what i do um but three you know we're three months later and what we need to focus our attentions on is different um like a- Asian Americans and Asian diaspora folks, you know, we, we have known for a long time that racism has existed and never gone away also. Yeah. And like for, for one brief moment in history, in recent history, the lens of hate was on us. But hey, times have changed and uh, the lens of hate and the the depths of pain that the black community are experiencing, especially in the U.S., um, mm-hmm. runs even deeper and stronger. And so, you know, like now, I hope that like at least we could come together to fight for them too, right? Yeah, it's a complex time. <laughs> like, it, you know, like it, it, I felt that like our show was very was very topical at the moment, and now people's attentions are elsewhere, and that is fine. Um, but you know, like the the guiding the the guiding ethos is fighting for social justice for everyone, and you know, like really dismantling so many things that are wrong beyond just beyond just the police brutality. It's also like you know our uh, black, indigenous, and uh, people of color uh, and queer folk who are not white. Um, Mm-hmm. They also experience le- like different levels of hate beyond that, right? Like, what else can I do mm-hmm. to to change the workplaces that I'm part of? What else can I do to change science communication so that it is more inclusive and that people really think about not just the co- the overt ways that uh, white privilege and and racism and you know. Um, white supremacy works, but all of the other sort of quote unquote mm-hmm. acceptable, tolerable ways that it continues to pervade our lives. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. Was there a time when you, um, maybe you would describe yourself as uh, catering to whiteness just a little bit more, or was that something that you were never really interested in? Oh, absolutely. 
uh, uh, I mean, as Filipinos, the depths of being colonized really influence our learning, right? And influence how we're, we grow up, how we're taught to grow up. The, the colorism of, you know, stay away from the sun. Oh, you're a darker kid. Your sister's more beautiful because she's lighter skinned. How, what a shame. Stay away from the sun. Um, yeah. The, the way that like, I've had conversations with family members. Uh, I remember this way back when I, my family, my immediate family moved to the U S and we immigrated to the U S and, um, we go back and on occasion I'll have relatives, aunties, uncles who are like, Oh, or like how are my, how are the black people in a way that's like, do you feel safe? Are you okay? And it's just like, they just don't know. Right. They right. don't know. And all they hear are terrible news and all they hear are certain parts of history. And it's just like the, how, how moments like that, small moments of conversation shape you as a person mm-hmm. um, and unlearning that. I feel like I, I have always catered to whites in that sense of being, of, of feeling inclined to be a model minority mm-hmm. because I had to be perfect. I had to work meritocracy, right? Like right. just work hard. And like, these are all parts of, of systems that, isn't branded as racist, but at their roots are, mm-hmm. right? And it's a the purposefully hidden paradise. from you as well so that you don't realize it as it's happening. Yeah, exactly. And so I feel like, like truly, truly like the moments that I felt, I didn't have the words. I didn't have, I couldn't articulate it. I wasn't eloquent enough. I didn't have the words. I wasn't surrounded by um, the right literature of social critique. All I knew was that in, in undergrad and graduate school, we were learning things in anthropology that started to give me those words. It was just a beginning of like thinking critically about audiences, thinking critically about spaces, mm-hmm. thinking critically about how social norms are made, right? In the U.S., I, uh, as an undergrad at New York University, we were taught four-field anthropology approach, which meant that, you know, I was also exposed to linguistics and how, uh, how certain words have that depth of meaning and to be able to critically think about that. Mm-hmm. Um, I was also exposed to social anthropology, which meant, you know, sure, we were learning about indigenous cultures, but also how, what does that mean and applying that to, uh, to our, our current like social structures, right? Yeah. Um, and then when we were doing archaeology and paleoanthropology, you know, being in spaces of like, I want access to study human evolution in Southeast Asia and requesting that access to Paris. Yeah. To like, you know, asking to go to the Philippines for my undergrad dis- dissertation to, to study Thabon, um, you know, material and going there and being like, oh, sorry, we promised it to the Parisian, so it's there. Uh, and also the scholars in the Philippines had to go to Paris. And like, you know, I love, like those people who I ended up working with in, in France were amazing. These are all good people, right? Mm-hmm. But they're working in a system that perpetuates inequity. Yeah. And I didn't have the words and I didn't have the knowledge to think critically about that until I went into science communication and I found comedy. Mm-hmm. Because I was working with other people in comedy who had that vocabulary, 
who who were exposing me to interdisciplinary ideas about um, thinking critically about these structures, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so I believe that like up until even two years ago, I was largely prioritizing white audiences. I would say the same, probably like about two or three years ago as well. And I feel very, so, you know, I, I, uh, you know, grew up in Hong Kong and, um, I, uh, generally speaking, like, you know, in Hong Kong, you actually have a lot of interaction with many different, uh, kinds of people, especially if you go to an international school. And I was always, um, in those circles, in those different circles, because, uh, I was half Filipino and half Chinese. And so I would interact with both of my families, um, after my parents divorced and, be part of both worlds. And then of course you have lots of, uh, you know, expats, um, you know, your, your white Australians, white British people, white Canadians in our school. And then you'd also have all the ethnic minorities in Hong Kong. Um, the, the, the Filipinos, the Indonesians, the Pakistanis, Indian, Sri Lankans. And I feel that, um, that probably was like what sparked my interest in studying anthropology in the first place. And I think that mm. I probably looked through the catalog of university subjects you could take. And I didn't even have to flip through the rest of the, <laughs> through the rest of the book. It was just like accounting, probably not. And then anthropology and archeology span yeah. looks great. Let's do this. And, you know, I never expected that it would not be a meritocracy because, you know, in Hong Kong, yeah. that's yeah. what it is basically that like you get marks then, you know, you're, you're good to go. Like you, you get to, to do this or that. Yeah. That is also not true though. Now that I uh, think about it, but then I go to the UK and, you know, this is the, you know, the empire that, that formerly um, colonized us and I feel, and, and left us with a, a system that as we now see in 2020 doesn't work. Yeah. Like they, they set us up uh, for this, uh, the protests that are happening right now. And I feel that in, uh, in the UK, it took a long time. Like it took about like eight or nine years for me to realize that uh, what was happening to me. So first I got really sad that for whatever reason, I don't think that I was given a lot of attention by my various teachers. I wasn't given equal attention and you know, I, I don't need all the attention in the world, but I just need a little bit of recognition that like, you know, I, I moved 9,000 uh, kilometers just to be there. Took a lot of, of investment in my time, money, um, and it's harder. It's just harder for us to like work hard in the uh, academe. And I, I, I don't know, it just, I got sad. And then I got really angry, like around my master's or like my PhD, because it was so frustrating. It was so frustrating because at that point, when you make the jump to graduate studies, you need access to equipment, labs, um, bones. Mm-hmm. Uh, you need access to you know, all kinds of things. And there are all these little um, microaggressions every single day that made me feel like I'm not welcome mm-hmm. and I'm not seen. Mm-hmm. Like even if we're just sitting at the pub and having a having some drinks, no, my lab would never ask me about my background in Hong Kong. And I suspect that, and, and for some of them, that still can, has continued all the way now until, you know, five years later. And I feel that's part of, part of their thinking is also just that they don't see race. Yep. Um, and that is not, Great, because you have to see me for who I am. I'm a Filipino Chinese Hong Konger, and I'm so proud of where I come from. I have so much life and color like in my background. You have to recognize it and you have to allow me to share some of that and to listen to like my my views and, and 
you know, just try and understand my worldview yeah. uh, if you're going to do science alongside me. But they, they didn't do that. And, um, you know, then I turned the anger into like action basically towards the end of my PhD and complained a lot on Twitter. I complained a lot in the faculty meetings that they don't hire diversely enough. They don't call, you know, decolonize their syllabi enough. They just don't do anything like in terms of social justice or um, inclusivity and uh, accessibility to the material that they are researching, to the material that they you know, purport to be for the good of all humankind. And I feel so mm-hmm. <laughs> cheated, basically. And uh, I, I spent so many years trying to cater to them, trying to do everything that I could to, you know, I, I can't tell you how many students, you know, I took, I took into teaching and how many hours I did that. Yeah. I just threw myself into it, did all the SciComm, did my PhD research, um, did all the admin roles that you could do as a student, organized this conference and that workshop didn't matter. It never mattered. Um, and I was never going to belong there. And so it's just like a really depressing realization that I was trying to cater to something that was never going to welcome me anyway. But that was, that's the thing though. We're, we're taught certain kinds of social currency in academia is what we need, but we're not taught what that actually means. And like, you know, what is incentivized? What isn't? Right. Mm-hmm. There, there's a lot of folks who now call themselves public scholars because they work outside the, the, the confines of academia precisely because they've realized that, you know, there are certain things that the, the roots of, of racism and the roots of inequality are so deep and so embedded into how each person works that they've bought into that and they haven't really had true real time to, 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 to reflect on it, mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. it, it's not really within the time, within our lifetimes, we don't have the power or the energy to be able to dismantle that in a way that's meaningful for us. And so there are people like Rachel Cargill, um, Shay Echo McLean, mm-hmm. um, who have turned towards this idea of being more of a public scholar because they can better work without the the without the oppression mm-hmm. of academic spaces. It's, it's still such a struggle for them, though, uh, yeah. for everybody who who wants to do this because the, it's so entrenched. Oh, yeah. And there's also like there's no money. You know, there's no how do you get mm-hmm. funding um, to do to make academia better without being an academic. Right. And but then like when you're asking for funding, you have to speak in their in their language and their social currency and in their thought and ideas. Otherwise, Mm -hmm. they don't see value in you. And so, you know, how can you fight against it? Like prestige to them, give them your money that you're going to apply for. Yeah. And so it's it's a it's a perpetual cycle. And like that that's hard to dismantle and to 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 step away from mm-hmm. when you have you feel like you've spent your entire life working up towards it and it's not surprising that every year there is a new article on how academics are you know especially black indigenous pocs um sometimes depending on you know spaces queer folk how how they struggle through mental health yeah because they feel like it's their fault, which it's not. 
right? Mm-hmm. Um, and that they're not supported. And again, not their fault. Like, but where we end up being in the space taught that it is our fault if we don't succeed. Um, Biological health as well. Like, I think that um, there are studies that show like the endocrine system, um, the even even your like they're like uh, genetic yes. factors that are like being affected. In academics, children after the fact because of this sort of um, you know the prejudices and racism that people face. Yeah, and there is a term in in um, social justice work called structural violence mm-hmm. that directly define and address these issues. Uh, and the definition of something that's violent for marginalized people is so much more specific to things that happened to us that we we don't we didn't have words for that we couldn't articulate because no one talks about it right like because we're surrounded by people who only focus on on success and merit um even if you know that you know being uh, like meritocracy is a myth for so many folks Mm -hmm. like we don't have those words and so not being able to articulate what's wrong makes us feel like it's our fault and we feel weird about it, right? Like, I, I truly, mm-hmm. I like the only thing that I can think of is like, how do we vocalize that more and more and embed that in the work that people are doing in professional development in academia? Like, that's that's how I've found some power to to push against and help people think critically right. about the the spaces that they work in. Because otherwise, I wouldn't be allowed to discuss these issues, right? I wouldn't be invited to give talks. I wouldn't be invited mm-hmm. to to give skills to people who are supposed to be good speakers, but they don't get taught and don't have spaces to practice public speaking. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. yeah. Uh, and uh, when I when I hear about like your, I've been following you for you know almost a year now, and I on Twitter, and I feel like. You know, when I first like saw that story or when you first told me about what happened to you when you were working in paleoanthropology and then there was that, you know, exclusion of your of your viewpoints and what you could contribute to those studies, it just, it really like just honestly just pissed me off because it's so, I think it's so ridiculous. Like I just think it's so ridiculous because you have a very homogenous group of people studying human evolution. You're going to have a limited view of what people were capable of or what people were doing in the past, what it means for us today, um, especially the communities in Southeast Asia. I feel there's no awareness basically of what it could contribute to the, to the heritage in the, in, in the local context. I think, um, I mean, we're, we're speaking on the record here with your podcast. So I just wanted to clarify that like Mm -hmm. how I, I, how I look back on my experience, um, as a graduate student versus what I was feeling at the time that led to my mental health problems. Um, It it was slightly different. I was actually, I had a lab and I had a mentor who were very supportive, but I didn't know and trust him enough to be able to vocalize it to the point where I was like internalizing everything. Right. Um, Right. Like I didn't think that he would understand what it means to struggle as a as a as an immigrant as a person of color as you know like i didn't think that i could say it out loud because no one else was saying it out loud and the other things that were also layering onto that were just 
seeing and experiencing how the meritocracy was a myth in graduate school of like seeing um, other uh, PIs and professors favoriting male graduate students and inviting them to, you know, to, to their studies more than females because there are too many females in the space anyway. And so, Hey, you know, the rarity of man in this space, how cool is that? All right. Like they, you know, like they might not be doing it uh, out loud. They might not even notice that they were doing it, but they were definitely doing it. Mm -hmm. And like other, you know, other ways that like other professors in that particular program would say that there are things that you have to do but the next year um a group of students had to like because he didn't feel like giving a final all just got a's because they all seemed like they were doing well and so they didn't have to suffer through finals on top of teaching on top of researching etc right and so like it just felt there, there's just so much anger that i didn't think i had the right to vocalize that it broke me down to the point that i mm -hmm. just couldn't like I you know and that that was what catalyzed my leaving and then in hindsight looking back there were just so many other things that was wrong that like it, it, it gave me time and mm -hmm. healing to be able to look back and to also formulate ways that I thought I actually had power to to change and to help other people feel empowered to to reframe things right um and, and like that was my progression that there was like a, when you're in it, it's hard to look, it's hard to look around you in the space of like what's going on. And so it feels like it's all on you. But the moment that you step out and the moment that you, you know, look towards other people who have had similar struggles and how they, you know, addressed it and how they found solutions for it. Like that was what was empowering to me. And mm -hmm. for me, it wasn't so science communication that did that. It wasn't academia that did that. It was finding strength in my in my comedy peers and the people that I was doing comedy with and mm -hmm. and how they were using their comedy to make things better, to clarify and fight for social justice. Mm -hmm. um, did a part of you also uh, look look within as well? Oh yeah, yeah. I felt like I mean, I, there's a lot that I could do better. And there's a lot that I could continue to do better. Mm -hmm. And, you know, like, I think uh, I try to apply that and be honest to anybody that I work with. Um, but I don't want to share that necessarily with everybody. Like, uh, you know, like, what good is it for me to publicize mm -hmm. um, a pity party, I guess, for me when I can, when I can just like, when I can share a lot of knowledge in other ways that is more actionable for other people um mm -hmm. i don't know like there there are certain moments where i've spoken to friends to black friend comedians who do a lot in social justice too because we we tend to exchange like notes and um there are moments that strike me and i look back on um one one friend uh x mayo had said at a panel once like she had found that she can vocalize all the problems as much as she wants, but her mom had always taught her, if you don't, if you don't also, you know, if you don't also pitch solutions and all you do is talk about the problem, are you actually helping solve the problem? 
right? Like, are you actually, Mm -hmm. you know, are you actually being valuable um, in your energy and the time that you spend um, just voicing the problem if you're not actually working to build solutions? And then there's another friend Mm -hmm. who is a geneticist, epidemiologist, you know, Mm -hmm. uh, Brandon Agbunu. And he did my show on science and race uh, last year with Angela Saini. And one of the things that he said is, you know, for everybody, as long as you're not black, like the worst thing that you could be is black in this country, in many places. And as long as you're not black, you benefit from privilege, white privilege, right? Mm -hmm. And that's always like really stayed with me of like you have like we have to acknowledge the ways that we benefit and perpetuate inequity otherwise like we're part of the problem otherwise Mm -hmm. how are we actually working to dismantle the things that that harm so many of our friends of our colleagues of our of strangers neighbors of of people we see who keep being pushed under the bus, right? Yeah. Like, I feel like those have been far more useful words of advice to me in being responsible to these relationships I've made and to the learnings I've gotten from other people who have struggled um, mm. to not just like wallow in what I'm feeling, but to actually try and do something in my capacity Mm -hmm. right and like also being knowledge like acknowledging that like i can't do everything um because then that feels like i'm a like it makes me it it makes me feel like a failure um and also isn't how science works right like science is iterative process and you know a process of constant failure until we get closer to to the truth and Mm -hmm. Like it, it just seems so antithetical to to wallow and sit on on like the things that I have done wrong if I'm not showing by example what I can do to correct the wrongs mm-hmm. that I have done. Yeah, yeah, that's how life should work as well, even outside of science. It, it's how it should work, but it makes it hard sometimes to to do that. Yeah, it's important to do so though. So, Kyle, this has been great. Uh, I'm thinking of closing the show soon if uh, people have any questions for you after listening to this can they find you somewhere online listen listen basically to some of the solutions that you're working on to solve some of the social issues going on right now so um, folks can follow me on instagram and twitter at kyle marion that's at k-y-l-e-m-a-r-i-a-n um but i would actually encourage people to uh follow and look uh for rachel cargill um, and Shay Akil McLean, um, they both have public syllabi for decolonizing and unlearning um, a lot of uh, a lot of the things that we have been conditioned to learn. Mm-hmm. Uh, decolonizing science, decolonizing uh, our work to be more front-footed about social justice and being anti-racist. Mm-hmm. Um, I think those are like my priorities right now: is to to funnel people to to those resources that already exist. Um, And yeah, I'm around if anyone wants to talk. Uh, My DMs are open. I have found a lot of uh, strength in helping and empowering 
other minorities in STEM and academia to to vocalize like the discomfort that they feel and to to find the right mm-hmm. words to to articulate um, the the injustices that they don't currently have the words for. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, I'm around. Um, yeah, I think it's uh, also very important for anybody out there who uh, is listening to this and might be struggling to find the the ways to actually express these concerns uh, regarding racial or social justice in their own workplaces or in their classrooms and lecture halls. If if you're really struggling, you know, uh, definitely try and reach out. Uh, I'm very happy to receive any uh, you know private emails or DMs as well, and I'll, I'll treat it with a lot of confidentiality. Yeah. I, I think that. It's important to, you know, know how to express yourself, but also not to um, put yourself in harm's way either. And uh, it's very important that you have some people to support you. And I've definitely been through that before, uh, struggling to find the right allies who would have my back, basically. Mm -hmm. And so that's really important not to go into it alone, but understand that, you know, nobody is alone when they uh, fight for social justice or they are trying to advocate for something. So reach out and come up with solutions together, but don't, don't act alone. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and also, you know, find when you're feeling the pressures on your mental health, give yourself that time to, to really find the right support system and also find professional guidance. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, that's really important. I didn't think when I was a, a, an undergrad and graduate student, I didn't think I needed to find a professional therapist. And it made all the difference in, in unlearning the, you know, the idea that like, I feel like I'm struggling and therefore it's my fault. Mm-hmm. Um, and to also give you, give me skills that I didn't think I had like I needed um, Mm -hmm. skills to help manage um, big problems like Mm -hmm. that. Uh, And uh, usually on the show, the last thing that we do is we come up with a hashtag to go with the episode so that listeners can use it to indicate that they've heard all the way through. So can you come up with a a good hashtag for this one? Um, That sort of sums up the conversation that we had or... Okay. Uh, Oh, yeah. I, I have one. The hashtag I'm thinking of is intersectional or bust intersectional or bust so what's the meaning behind intersectional or bust i think it's just a reminder for myself of it's no good to just fight for for one group if it throws another marginalized group under the bus or under danger mm-hmm. um it does greater harm to to only fight for one and so i think it's important to also continue to to keep working on ourselves so that we are more inclusive in the work that we do and you know honor the pain that people have gone through so that we pay it forward as best as we can mm-hmm. so intersectional or bust excellent hashtag <laughs> <laughs> so listeners if you want to let us know that you've heard all the way to the end of the episode then use the hashtag intersectional or bust and let us know you can find the podcast at Arcananth Pod on Reddit, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Um, I would also encourage all the listeners right now to, um, if you're if you're thinking about this and you would like to do something to support intersectional work that's happening right now, then go visit the Black Visions Collective, which is an organization that is led by Black, trans, and queer activists, and they work very hard to try and educate, to litigate, 
to dismantle systems of oppression and violence by telling stories, by sharing stories and uh, resources. So definitely check out the Black Visions Collective. And you can also look at the Unicorn Riot. So Google Unicorn Riot, and that is another uh, nonprofit organization that is trying to expose a lot of the root causes of social as well as environmental issues and come up with some solutions for them. So definitely check that out. You can go on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, and Arcanath.com to find a lot of our previous episodes if you haven't checked out the rest of the catalog yet. And I'll also be including a bunch of links to some of Kyle's work on the Arcanath podcast website. Kyle, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah. Um, and yeah, all the best. Uh, I really hope that 2020 gets better and that there's a, a more sustainable, just and equitable world to look forward to in the latter half of the year. Yeah, we'll cross our fingers. huh? <laughs> yeah. In the meantime, uh, I'm sure, you know, we're going to keep working and we're going to keep trying to support as best we can. Listeners, goodbye. Bye. Bye.